Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Perlin, your host for Vermont Viewpoint here on WDEV in historic Waterbury, Vermont. A beautiful weekend, uh, not so much of a rain weekend, which we've certainly seen a lot of. I went with my daughter and a friend of hers up to Franklin County Field Days to uh, see a little bit of Vermontacana, I call it, and a really great um, event of the farming community, the tractor pulls, the weights, all the stuff. It's a little bit like a mini Champlain Valley Fair kind of thing with uh, greater Franklin County showing up, and it was great. My daughter and her friend went on a ride uh, called Superman, which was taller than most of the oak trees in my yard, which are 150 years old, and this thing went up so high and spun around. I would have gotten on it myself, except I couldn't see that there was an ambulance anywhere near uh, and, uh, I just felt like I'd be better to take pictures of them. And they did it twice and it was like an amazing ride. And Franklin County Field Days is, uh, really fun. Uh, great show this morning. Uh, I will be starting with, uh, Reva Sullivan Murphy and Martin Jufri. They're talking about a, uh, Alberg family clubhouse, which is, been in the works for a while and uh, making a lot of progress getting there and really going to be uh, a great asset for the Alberg and Franklin County area. I'll be talking at 10 o'clock with our good friend Elliot Greenblatt, who is AARP Fraud Watch. And then at uh, 10.30, uh, Stacy Hamblett's going to join me. She owns this urban salon and a new business also called Lifestyling with Stacy. And uh, Stacy is guiding women to grow and find their gift, and it's an invitation uh, for women to turn inward and uh, really sort of help improve their lives. So look forward to talking with her. Uh, I want to uh, open up the show, though, and welcome uh, my two guests, Reva Sullivan Murphy and Martin Jufri. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great having you. And, uh, Reva, I was able to hear you and Gina Lewis, uh, one of the board members for the project, uh, last week. And I was really excited about hearing about this in, in Alberg and the fact that it's child care has really become at the forefront of, uh, Vermont's landscape. And so it was, I'm, I'm grateful both of you can be here to tell us about the project. So thank you. Well, um, what I, I, I just, I, I'd like Martin to tell you about some of their journey, but it is a really exciting project. And, um, I think, uh, uh, they've been at this for a long time before childcare had emerged as, as the priority that it is. And so they're really poised to be able to take advantage. But, um, it just shows you what a community can do if they have, um, the will and the spirit. Yeah, and Martin, can you give us a little background about you and, and how you got involved with the project? Yeah, actually the project started in 2016, long before I was involved. I actually am a volunteer at the uh, Albert Public Library, 
and I was simply sitting there one day manning the desk, and Gina's telling me a little about this project, Gina Lewis. She's really the spearhead of the project, and she's been the one that's been involved in it since the very beginning. And uh, Gina's telling me that they have to hold this public meeting and that they need uh, community members to come in and take a look at some of the things that have been proposed, and would I be interested? Well, not having anything to do that particular day, I said, sure, I'll go. <laughs> and uh, I didn't. I expected it to be a one-and-off, that I was going to go there and listen to a presentation, maybe offer a couple of comments, and that would be it. But they were better organized than I thought, and uh, they had us into committees before we knew what was happening. And when I walked out of the meeting, I was on the development committee for the Albert Family Clubhouse. Well, these uh, they should be in the uh, in the Pentagon. This group because they sound like they know how to get things done. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very fast. I really didn't know what had happened, uh, and um, fr- from there, uh, very quickly, uh, a board of directors was formed. Uh, the the uh, clubhouse had already been incorporated, so the board of directors was formed, and we began the work of trying to raise the kind of funding that was going to be necessary uh, to bring this project to fruition. Um, it's, I've been on the board now into my, in my fifth year. We hope we're going to be ba- breaking ground this fall and opening uh, in July of 24. Uh, a, a long way, but um, it, none of it would have happened if it wasn't for the other person that's on this show with you, and that's Reva. Uh, the... Um, uh, Let's Grow Kids uh, organization has been very supportive of us, and they could see that we needed help, and we weren't sure what kind of help we needed. So they suggested that they would help fund uh, a consultant for us if if we would go that route, and we did, and we uh, contracted with Reva to help organize this project, to help get the financing that we needed for the project, to put together the kind of plans that this project needs that none of us had the experience for, but that she does have the experience for. So Reva's pivotal to this entire project. Yeah, that was evident to me when I heard uh, Reva and, uh, you know, talking at the meeting last week uh, with Gina. Uh, so Reva, can you tell us a little bit also about, about your involvement and your professional development and experience? Oh, uh, thanks, Martin. I've been in child care for uh, over 40 years now. I gauge it by the age of my son, who's 43, and I had him just as I finished grad school in early childhood education and special education. Um, because I had a young child, I got involved in child care um, back then in a small, uh, actually for-profit uh, center that one of my classmates was opening. And uh, I just love the field. I, I love the people in the field. And I know how important it is for families to have choices uh, about care for their children um, if they're working or if they just want some developmental opportunities for their kids. Um, and I have to say it has been an, under, uh, an underfunded uh, uh, industry for all the years I've been in it. It is amazing for me to see the progress we're making now with public investments in child care and people really understanding that this is in the public interest um, to have early care and education and child care available to families. It has been, um, so I went from being in, in, the, in the field, working as a teacher, as an administrator, 
as a trainer. Um, I, I then pivoted into government and I worked for nine years in Rhode Island and 10 years here in Vermont, um, administrating childcare programs, just hoping to sort of make progress towards making the field better. Uh, I retired in 2019, um, and have been doing consulting just this is for me a dream project to find a, a small community that believes so fiercely in what they're trying to do. And these guys just have put in, Martin, I don't think we could count the volunteer hours um, that you guys have put so. in making this project go. So, and they are, you know, good at make. when I put a decision in front of them, they make it and we move on. And they've just been um, terrific to work with. And I think that's been some of the success of our funding because people um, meet the board and they hear about the project and um, and they get on board. And we've had some great partners. Then maybe, Martin, you want to talk about some of those partners and champions and people who have helped along the way. I mean, it's been great for me to use my expertise to help these guys, um, but it's really they're the heart and soul of this project, and they're what's going to make it really happen. Well, one of the partners is the Northwest Regional Planning Commission, uh, which did, uh, which helped us with the first grant that we that we got. Uh, that that grant is still part of our project, and the woman uh, who's who's done a lot of that work is Greta. She's done most of that work, uh, and that organization really, in the, in our earliest days, kept us focused, kept us moving, uh, kept us uh, kept us with our eye on on the target. Uh, helped us to uh, navigate all the, uh, the the federal regulations that are involved when you're dealing with federal money, and believe me, there are a lot of them. Uh, and um, uh, they were they were pivotal to us, and they still are. They're still a part of this project. They've been from the very beginning, and actually, uh, before we were able to bring Reva on board, Greta was doing a lot of the work that Reva's doing now. But it wasn't really Greta's job. She just believed in our project and wanted us to succeed, and and was willing to do that until we could and, and, until we could stabilize the whole the whole project and move forward. So that's one of the most important partners that we've had in the community. Um, uh, the community members themselves. We've had people that have worked on Calcutta Night uh, through the American Legion. We've had people that put together a, a, a special uh, fireworks show during COVID where you couldn't even get out of your car. Uh, we have people that help us uh, at the recycling center sorting bottles. Uh, there, are, when you work in the library, you see a, a lot of people every day, and almost everyone who comes into that library wants to know what's new with childcare center. Mm. Uh, when we do a mailing, uh, we've gotten several thousand dollars out of a community that doesn't have a lot of resources. It's a community that's uh, that's that struggles a lot of the time and. Uh, probably a, a good representative of that is that 80% of the kids that are in the Alberg school system qualify for federally subsidized lunch long before the state decided it might help out with with lunches for students. 80% is a phenomenal number. That, that makes us a, a very, very needy community. Yeah, so that is. Uh, we're anyway. talking. We're talking with uh, Martin Jufri and uh, Reva Sullivan Murphy about a uh, really amazing project up in Alberg called the Alberg Family Clubhouse, which has been in development uh, formation since 2016. Here we are in 2023. 
Uh, Martin, you're no stranger to education as well. You have a background in in education. Can you tell us about that as well? Well, I was uh, started as a middle school teacher and then a middle school administrator, but spent the last 15 years of my profession as the principal of Stowe High School. Uh, I, but I can tell you I had no qualifications to, to begin to understand child care. <laughs> I had never done anything with child care in my life. And I think when, you're, when, you, when you focus on the high school end of things, you know, uh, high schools have a way of kind of sucking the air out of the room. Uh, they take a lot of energy. <clears throat> they, take a, they, they get a lot of attention. <clears throat> and, and the more important parts of the whole system don't. And it took me a while to realize that, <clears throat> that any success that I was going to have with, with my students uh, and any failures that we, were going to, that we were going to see were all going to have happened a long, long time ago. And we needed to put a, a heck of a lot more energy into early education than we were doing. Uh, I had a conversation with the governor about that when he visited a couple of years ago and said, you know, put, put your emphasis on child care, not on college admittance. This is, where we, this is where we need to help the most if our students are going to succeed. If we give them the skills they need as they're coming through the system, they'll succeed no matter where they are. So, uh, Reva, turn back to you. There, this is pretty complex as, as I'm hearing it. It's not just about, um, creating opportunities for moms or dads to have their kids taken care of while they work, but it's also giving, you know, for lack of better word, you know, a head start advantage to, to younger kids and, uh, workforce development and all of this is am I on the right track here? Uh, absolutely, Brad. I mean, one of the things that the science has uh, has shown over the last, I, I would say, thirty years is that um, human brains are built before the age of five. So um, the neural connections that are being made at that age, the sort of foundation of all your future learning and uh, social and emotional development happens in those very early years. And so those experiences that children have in those years um, are really pivotal, as Martin said, to their future success in school, to their future success in life. And so what's really interesting about this project, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion about the, um, the development on economic, on on local economies that childcare can have by allowing families to work and be comfortable, by allowing businesses to uh, recruit and retain employees. But um, I love that in Alberg, the board has really focused on the fact that um, the I'm trying to remember the number of kids that were entering with IEPs. It was like the 80 percent um, free and reduced lunch rate was very high. And And part of their goal is that they want the, these children to have exposure to experiences. And some of that is just because um, parents, is, are, parents are highly stressed or parents themselves aren't quite sure what to do in those early years. Um, and it's really a way to support families, to support their children, and support children's developing brains. And really that is the value proposition they make, is that um, in addition to supporting economic development in the community and the region, they really want to support that sort of early educational um, success and family strength so that um, 
that that creates a more vibrant community. And I love that about this group. It sounds amazing. And uh, Alberg is, uh, you're not quite in polar bear country, but you're the northern part of our state. And uh, you're, it's an interesting community to me because it's, you're a, a major route to New York and Canada, yet you're also really a, a village as well. And, and so you have both components of travel through and, and really a local community. And one of the things that we discovered uh, in all of this is several different kinds of surveys have had to be done to satisfy uh, one uh, one grant or another. Uh, a lot, most of our people who live in Alberg uh, commute to Chittenden County in order to work. We'd like to reverse a little of that. We will be, when we open, the second biggest employer in Alberg next to the school district. And we'd like to be able to attract uh, people for good quality, high-paying jobs uh, with benefits uh, that people can rely on so they don't have to leave the community. So it's, it's important to us that we look at this first and foremost, of course, as, as child care, but secondly, as an employer who's, who's going to need and want to be a supporter of the community. Yeah, so Martin, does this open Alberg up to, um, is there a visioning process going on for economic development in, in, you know, industry or manufacturing or anything that grand or more mom and pop scale and, and, and a little bit smaller? I think a, a smaller scale. We've had, uh, three businesses open in the last year and a half in Alberg. Uh, that, that, that was real, that, that's a, that's a big deal to us because up until then businesses were constantly closing and, and, and the most, uh, vibrant business we had was a dollar store. But now we've got other businesses that have been refurbished and are opening. We, we've got a restaurant and bakery in town. Uh, we've got people that are interested. We, we certainly have people that are interested in moving here. We, we, like the rest of Vermont, we don't have enough housing for people at the moment. Um, but we also need, without the child care, um, it, it's, uh, it's really difficult for people because right now people, if they live here and have younger children, have to transport their children somewhere else for child care, usually in, in Swanton or St. Albans or Chittenden County. Mm. Uh, and, they, and when their children are in school, there's nowhere for them after school. We need to be able to change that. So that they can, they can, we actually will broaden their their horizon for things that they might be able to do. But it, your first question, I think we're a smaller business-looking community. I don't think we're a large manufacturing. I haven't heard anything like that. Yeah, uh, we're talking with Reva Sullivan Murphy and with Martin Jufri. They are part of an exciting project in in Alberg, the Alberg Family Clubhouse. Uh, and Reva, I know that you've been, uh, diligently guiding this, uh, to help, you know, to help make it happen. And, uh, it's a, it's been a long pro, uh, process and, and maybe you can, uh, we're going to take a break in about two minutes, but, um, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about, uh, how the process is, uh, guided and, and, you know, where, where you saw, you know, why it's taking so long. Well, um, just, just to, to 
talk about what Martin just talked about as well. The capacity of this program is 62 children, so it's not huge. It'll be a cohort of, of, say, 18 or 20 children who hopefully will move through the program as we go. And so um, I'm not sure we, we could we support a big manufacturing, but I think we can support the need that we see developing in the community. And one thing I want to say about this group, and we can probably address more of those the pieces after, the first question I asked them when I came on board about um, three, three and a half years ago was, you know, what, what, what do you, who's going to run this place? You know what I mean? Like they had this idea. And so, you know, they could go in many directions. They could have looked for a vendor who would have come in and probably eventually taken my place to, to work with them, or they could, you know, they had, there were a lot of different options. And this group really chose um, to be, to remain a community driven um, operation. So this is a nonprofit that will run a childcare center for the town. And I, I, I think that's a really that was a really cool option for them to pick. Um, it meant that they needed me to sort of guide them through the business things, but they're a great board and they pay attention to all of that. One of the things that takes a long time is the, is the fundraising, um, Brad. Like um, this is now a three million dollar project, and we've had to go to a lot of federal sources, um, and that take it's. As Martin mentioned, it takes a lot to get through those applications and meet all the requirements um, that you need to create. And it doesn't matter whether you're renovating or or building. You'd, if you want to get the funding to get the job done, that is one of the things that has taken the longest um, time. And these guys have really persisted um, to get that done through every barrier. Um Maybe after the break, we could talk a little bit about they did had to do a bit of a pivot because it started out as a school partnership, and that um, didn't quite work out for lots of reasons. But they just kept going and are now ready, um, as, as Martin said, to break ground in the fall. Yeah, wow. Um, I know that uh, the school partnership uh, didn't work, but it certainly was the propeller to to get it going. But it was it's. It's really um, admirable that people stuck with it, even though that sounded like you had to pivot on that. But you started the project uh, before Act 76, as you as you both mentioned, and um, you stuck with it. And it was fortuitous, really, that that money came along. And it's a expensive project. You're a model, though, for other communities to to do this kind of thing. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more, Reva, about the development of, of the project and the stages that it's taken? Sure. The, um, you know, originally it was a partnership with the school when I came in and even as the board decided that it would, um, that it would, it was willing to, to actually run the child care center instead of bringing someone different in, um, at the school, we were really um, partnering on pre-K. We were going to – the after-school programs are going to be in the school, and, and the voters of Alberg actually voted to allow this building on school property. Um, the sort of uh, bureaucratic work that needed to be done to make all of that happen got really daunting. And so um, I think it was in 2021 we pivoted and decided – um, that we that it was just going to be too hard to to get it going with the school. We had um, a local uh, benefactor step up with a piece of land. We did look at other 
up other sites besides that land for that really ended up being the very best thing for us. And, and that was um, a huge opportunity. So as Martin said, you know, the, the folks of Al, the people of Alberg have supported this project. Um, the board has raised over $100,000 in local donations besides this piece of land that um, made, made it possible to go forward. Um, there were other early helpers. United Way has been with us most of this time, providing support, expertise, sometimes um, money when they had it to give. We've had some private um, foundations, the Hale Foundation, the Mergens Foundation, who, who early on believed in the project and helped us start to build, um, you know, some money. Um, Let's Go Kids has been invaluable in terms of advice and um, and funding when they had funding available. And uh, we the project was selected by the Champlain Islands Economic Development Corporation as their number one priority to support for this year. So Andy Jewell up there has been um, a cheerleader and supporter, and we're about to launch our final financing piece, which is a capital campaign, um, in partnership with him. So it really has been many hands-on. Um, in terms of our Commerce Department, gave a grant to the project early to the town early on who's holding um, a, a community development grant from them that's contributing to the work. And um, USDA Rural Development, which is a federal um, agency, ta- and one of their tasks is actually, it's of course rural community development, and, and one of their missions is child care. And they have been fantastic working with us, um, and we are looking to, um, to procure a loan from them. Of course, the less we take out in loans, the the, uh, smoother, the less our operation costs. So um, we're still working on fundraising as we move forward. Um, you mentioned Act 76, and I think that's really important. One of my jobs is creating a business plan for these guys, as well as a financing plan. And I've done several, <laughs> Martin, over the course of, the, of our operations. But um, before Act 76, this board was committed to continuing to raise funds for just basic operations because of their huge commitment um, to, jo- to good jobs, right? So 70, about 70 to 80% of all expenses in child care is, is labor, is personnel. And this group really wanted good-paying jobs, so it meant that the care is costly. Um, and they were willing to fundraise, to go to employers to help support families, pay for it. Um, when Act 76 passed and I got to do a new business plan modeling the child care subsidies under Act 76, um, it supports these good jobs that these guys want to do. And that is wonderful because it means they'll still be raising money for um, projects and for other things. But it means that this will we'll be able to offer those good jobs that they really wanted. Martin's pushing us to get even better now that it's here, um, and 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 families will be able to afford to come. So that um, that really has been a game. That's a big game changer in terms of looking at our future sustainability. So is Act seventy six a long term funding source? That's not just an incubator. Yes, it actually is more a long-term funding source than an incubator. Unfortunately, um, they did put, um, I believe it's $20 million into some readiness grants for this summer, but those were to already operating child care centers, so we, we won't get a part of that, unfortunately. But in terms of long-term, they've invest, invested um, $125,000 um, 
hundred sorry, I'm saying this wrong. Um, hundred and twenty five million dollars in in long term permanent funding for uh, child care subsidies to help parents afford high quality child care that pays good wages to people. So um, that's a huge game changer for all of child care um, and and changed our business plan overnight, literally, as I was able to factor in those um, those change subsidies. So I was sort of in the periphery listening to the whole child care, the bill, and uh, it's an enormous amount of money. What what was the political change that made a commitment that is absolutely phenomenal. Did, did you see how the movement happened on this? Oh, sure. Um, and, and so that's all Let's Grow Kids, I have to tell you that. But at the at the same time, um, Vermont is really at the forefront. Act 76 puts Vermont at the forefront of, of across the United States of really trying to solve the child care crisis that became so acutely clear during covid but has existed for as long as I've been in childcare, um, and so the movement really was. I, I, when I came here 14 years ago, I came because I really thought it was a policy environment as a person working in government where there was a lot of good momentum for childcare. Um, but it really took um, the people at the permanent fund at Let's Grow, who formed Let's Grow Kids, to get that vision really bigger and to get a groundswell of support around the fact that it's a problem that we can't pay good wages in child care, and um, it's a problem that families cannot afford it. And, I mean, it used to break my heart to hear a radio show where a parent would say, I, we want to have another child, but we can't because um, we can't afford the child care we have now. So Let's Go Kids really, um, I think, was a lot of the the – information, the movement, the groundswell, as you would say, behind getting this. But you have to say a lot for our legislature. And, you know, it's not that the governor doesn't get it. He totally gets it um, and has supported child care and early education as long as he's been governor. Um, But it's going to be paid for with a payroll tax. And as you know, the governor doesn't doesn't like new taxes. So that was that was their really only difference. Mm-hmm. that he didn't want to use a tax, but the decision the legislature made was to use a payroll tax as a permanent funding stream. So this is a long, this is long-term and it will help every uh, child care uh, program in the state going forward. I'm talking this morning with Reva Sullivan Murphy, a consultant to an exciting project in Alberg and Martin Jufri, who is, uh, he, he was he got put on a board even though he was at the meeting. Usually in Vermont, you don't show up for the meeting, and they make you president, Martin. So you, at least you escape being president. <laughs> uh, but a, a great project. President. So oh, uh, so it's a three million dollar uh, price tag at the moment. That's the figure you used. Is that? To get the doors open, Martin, or is that um, get into the finances of the first year of operation, or what's the breakdown? It, it, do, it, it both. <laughs> yeah, it does both. It get, it opens the doors and and gets into the first year's finances. And uh, you've got um, you said in my notes here, sixty two children from Alberg are potentially going to be served. Is that 
is that capacity for for the building? Yes, yeah, sixty-two is the capacity. Okay, and any expansion opportunity if it, you know, if Alberg, you know, Alberg's a beautiful spot, and then it grows, and you get housing, and or maybe other communities want to send their kids. Is the, there the biggest issues around expansion? Are, uh, not necessarily the land, but um, you know, when you're dealing with septic systems in the state of Vermont, you're dealing with mound systems. Yeah, and you're also dealing with Act Two Fifty. Well, let's talk uh, about Act Two Fifty. Yeah, Act Two uh, Act Two Fifty is a complicated process, uh, and because Alberg doesn't have zoning, uh, we have to deal with Act Two Fifty. Uh huh. And uh, it, it's uh, it, it's complicated. Uh, there's a lot to it. We have uh, we have other people that have worked on that part of the project and get all that those things in line. There are, there are a lot of regulations around land acquisition and building in the state of Vermont, and that's why the legislature has been talking about making some changes to make things a little bit easier, but we haven't seen that yet. And that's been part of the holdup in the process, is that we have to plot along at, 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 at a slower rate in order to, to go through all the minefields that are involved in, in Act 250 in particular. Yeah, uh, but we've we've successfully we've successfully submitted the application, and that's the last hurdle we had. We've in past we've passed environmental uh, uh, reviews, historical reviews, uh, uh, water permits, uh, septic design. You can't. There's an incredible amount of things that have to go on in order to do something like this. And I don't think any of us understood that when we really started it. Um, Thank goodness. We've gotten through all that, and we're almost at the very end of it. Uh, we, so at that, we're almost about we're almost shovel ready. Yeah. Wow. In July, uh, you're you're within a year of of opening a door if all goes well. Is there are there any obstacles that could stop it at this point, or is this uh, full speed ahead? I think we're full speed ahead. We have some uh, really good support from uh, local financing in the town. And uh, if, as long as the USDA uh, approval, loan approval, as we expect, comes through, uh, we expect that we're going to be able to move forward. I would like to give a little shout-out, Brad, to Senator Sanders. Uh, I don't think very many people know about this, but uh, and only in Vermont would a U.S. senator, uh, on a Sunday morning in August, drive himself up to Alberg, and sit down with two board members and talk about a child care project for the better part of an hour. And when he was done, he was willing to support our project, not only in, in, in name, but with money. And uh, Bernie got uh, through the uh, uh, budget process last year, uh, almost $200,000 for us, which is what we asked him for, mm-hmm. um, in, order, in order to help us support that. Uh, but only in Vermont would that kind of thing happen, where you get a U.S. senator all to yourself, with <laughs> with no fanfare, yeah. no publicity, <laughs> just Bernie. Yeah, it's it's a great thing, and Vermont is like that. Piece of Vermont. Yeah. To see happen. And two hundred thousand dollars is a big chunk of money, so that that is it absolutely is. He, great. He's been also very supportive. Representative Bailent has been supportive. She's been here this year. Uh, meeting with us on this very project. Uh, we, we've had really, really very strong support from all of our uh, federal and um, 
state politicians. We've been we've been very fortunate in the state of Vermont. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah, no, it's great, uh, Riva. The the staffing is um, sort of one of the next. I won't use hurdle as my main word, but it's challenging in Vermont now and. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the positions you hope to create or you've created and, and, and what, how they will fulfill, um, making this, you know, the, the par excellence that, that we hope for? Yeah, that's so important, Brad, and I'm glad you brought it up. This is a, the, well, workforce is a challenge for all industries right now. Um, in childcare, it's very acute because it really is all about the people. You don't get excellence in childcare without people who are um, well trained, competent, well qualified, and the very best of all things is if they stay and you develop these continuous relationships among both the staff and with the families and the children because it's all about the families and the kids. Um, all over Vermont right now, there are classrooms that are closed because the child care providers simply can't staff them. They don't have the people. Um, and, and not only do they not have the qualified people, they don't even have the people that they could. Um, we have wonderful programs here to train and support people through higher education if you choose child care or early childhood as a field. And they can't even get the people in to get into the training programs. We just are having a really difficult time um, getting staff. The good news is under Act 76, people will be able to pay more. It has historically been a, um, a low-paid a low paid profession that people do more for love and dedication than they do um, to, to be able to support themselves and their families. And so that's one of the things that we're really hoping to change. Um, and it's a dilemma because when you think about 70 to 80 percent of the expenses going into labor – into the people, the only way to keep rates affordable for families is not to pay very well. But these guys from the beginning said, no, we're going to pay and, and we're going to do well. But we're worried because, as you said, Alberg um, is not on the beaten path. And we need, um, we need a really dynamic and wonderful executive director to step in and run and really um, work closely with the board to make this program thing. We're looking for an assistant director to, to work with that person, and then we'll need 16 direct service staff. Um, about six of those will be part-time for much of the year, working with school-age kids or, or staffing our full hours, which will be 7 uh, to 5.30. Um, or uh, We'll see what demand is once we get open, but that's our current plan. Um, and so we're worried about finding the people. As Martin said, we're hoping to attract some people to maybe come in, but then they have to find a place to live in Alberg and, or near Alberg. But um, it's a concern, and it's a concern all across the state in a very rural area. It is uh, a, a little bit greater of a concern because you have to get people there and willing to commit. So um, that is probably our next challenge. It, it'll come up as we get a little closer, but... Um, we're certainly going to be looking for staff line. And, and the whole reason we came down to meet with the council in um, St. Albans, which is such a great group, um, was to talk about what are we doing in, in the region, in the, um, you know, the Franklin Grand Isle region to create a pipeline of early childhood professionals um, to, to staff these programs and help, help us develop those, those young brains to their best possible 
Yeah, no, it sounds wonderful. And, and, you know, the good news is that Franklin County is one of the uh, fastest growing counties in the state of Vermont. Uh, it maybe is a little bit more affordable than other areas. So, and this really speaks to, you know, the, the whole push of an elderly state, but now you're offering opportunity to people to come in from out of state where they can get a good paying job in a beautiful area, Alberg, the islands, uh, and, Gorgeous. and really, uh, prosper. And it's not just, you know, people sometimes stay home with, with benefits that, uh, are, you know, match what they could make in the workplace, but you're giving them an opportunity to expand and grow. And, and it's just, it's a wonderful model project. I, I certainly commend both of you for this and all of the effort that's gone into it. Uh, and what about, uh, e- either of you, Martin or Reva, the emotional, uh, support for the kids? Is that, um, a component in here? You know, you're talking about kids that, you know, are on, um, some special programs and stuff. Uh, is that, is that part of it as well? Uh, it's a big part of it, of course. And that speaks a lot to, um, to the, to the, training and skill of the staff, right? And so that's why it's so important that we get the right staff. And um, one of the things that's really cool about the pivot to, you know, their to their own center in a location separate from the school, certainly we'll be partnering with the school on UPK, on special ed for preschool children, on after school. Um, but part of that was the original vision, the Promise Community Group that convened in 2016 had was of this being a place to support families because home is where it all starts, right? How do we support families to be strong and um, build their protective factors around their children um, and, and capable? And we've got space now in this new building where community gatherings can be held, parent education, um training for staff in the evenings or when we're, we're not in session. Um, we have a, a, a separate office that if um, if people from uh, Children's Integrated Services need to come in and work with parents and children, we have a space for that. So, yeah, that support for families and kids, you know, to be uh, thriving in their town is, is everything behind this project. Well, it's just amazing. We've been talking this morning with Reva Sullivan-Murphy and Martin Jufri about the Alberg Family Clubhouse. It's a, it's an incubator model really that can be used all around the state. And I hope that, uh, there's some political will to say, hey, this is a model. Maybe we shouldn't make the, uh, the process, the Act 250 process so onerous. And maybe you guys can champion that a little bit so that other communities can, can have a little quicker journey than, than you have. And I commend you both for uh, taking it where it is. We look forward to get, having you back uh, when the grand opening happens, full staff, and uh, 62 happy children in, in Alberg. I think it will be absolutely wonderful. So thank you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much for your time and interest. Yeah, it's a great project. This is Brad Furlan, uh, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV Radio here in Waterbury, Vermont. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, 
We're more than just radio. Good morning. It's Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here at WDEV in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, we just had a great conversation about uh, uh, the Alberg Family Clubhouse, which is going to be a child care center in Alberg. Great model for uh, Vermont and for um, getting people out into the workforce and helping the community grow. Uh, coming up later in the uh, on WDV is Common Sense Radio with Bill Sayre, and he's going to be talking with Governor Douglas about the 100th anniversary of Calvin Coolidge taking office. Calvin Coolidge being one of two uh, Vermont uh, presidents, uh, Chester A. Arthur was the other one, uh, and, uh, of course we had, uh, two, two, uh, modern time, uh, folks running for president and they did quite well, uh, Bernie Sanders and, uh, and, uh, Howard Dean. So, uh, we'll hear a little bit more with Bill about, uh, the 100th anniversary of, uh, the swearing in of Calvin Coolidge. Later at one o'clock, travels with Charlie with Charlie Papillo, and I'm going to get to join um, Charlie for a little bit of the segment. Talk about a substance use addiction summit uh, that I help organizing with Melinda White, and then Charlie's going to be talking with Rusty Deweese, uh about a fundraiser and Randy Smith uh, from 8084. Uh, a flood relief benefit concert coming up. So that's very exciting to hear and a uh, much needed uh, effort to get some uh, funds into the Vermont community and help people restore their, their businesses and their livelihood and their homes and all of that. Uh, and now I want to welcome back our, our good friend to the program, uh, AARP and, um, Elliot Greenblatt, you've been, you've been guiding us for months, uh, on how to avoid fraud scams and, and it's a billion dollar industry. Welcome to the show, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, glad to be back here with uh, some more tips. Yeah. Um, we, uh, storm scam follow up, uh, the first notes I have are about charity scams and boy, that sounds like such evil to me that somebody would take advantage of a, of something like that. Um, but obviously it's, it's something that's happening. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. You know, we're, we're now seeing the follow up to, uh, the storms early last month and, that includes an attempt by many of these con artists to tug at our hearts. And they know that people tend to be very sympathetic when there's been a tragedy. And as soon as there is, it doesn't matter if it's the flooding in Vermont or hurricane in Florida, wildfires in California, uh, this low-life group jumps in as soon as they can and uh, it really has two impacts. One is it, it sours folks who want to do a, a good job by providing a donation. And the uh, other thing is it, it gets the money into the wrong hands, so it doesn't do any good for the people who need it. Uh, the charity scams are probably about the low of the low as far as we're concerned. And, you know, there's another group that, that we have to be very careful for. 
and that is when charities don't have the staffing, they end up going to a professional fundraiser. And the fundraisers make the calls, and they take a percentage of the money that's donated. The problem is when professionals are involved, the amount of money that actually gets through to the charity is very little. I received a call requesting a donation for a law enforcement group. Uh, there are two questions you can ask. The first one is, are you a professional fundraiser? And by law, they have to answer that. And then the second question is, what percentage of the money goes to the charity? And it can be as little as 16%. That's percent of the money collected. The rest goes to the fundraiser. So you need to be really careful about the charities. Uh, you can always check them out at a website called Charity Navigator, and they do a good job at reading the charities. Another issue that we see, uh, calls from insurance companies. It's really not an insurance company, but it's somebody that's being an imposter, either for that or for the state or federal government. And they're always going to ask you for personal information. could include your Social Security number, uh, your driver's license number, uh, other personal information, including the value of your home. So... Uh, before you give any information out to anyone on the phone, verify that you're talking to the real thing and ask for a callback number and say, I'll call you back. And then you can check it out at your leisure. Wow. And on the charity scams for the fundraising, how would I be approached? What? How does that work that I'd – is somebody saying, hey, I'm raising it for a specific uh, whatever? I, I don't know. Well, what? what Let's create a scam charity then. Uh, a scam charity would be uh, you get a phone call from a very nice gentleman saying, Hi, I'm George Smith, and I work for the Vermont Flood Charity Association. And we're trying to help those folks in the towns that were flooded out, such as Londonderry and Waterbury and Montpelier. And if you're willing to give a small donation, it can go a long way. All I need is your credit card number, the date of expiration, and the security code. We can process that and get the money to work right away. Wow. So, Elliot, you just convinced me. I was about to pull my wallet out. Um, so how do I know the difference between real and, and uh, scam? First thing is never give any information, including credit card numbers, things like that, over the phone. If it's a legitimate charity, you can say, could you send me a pledge card? And then you can decide whether you really want to give to that charity after you check it out. But never give personal information, credit card numbers. Uh, those things become uh, the, the blood and meat of uh, the scam. Wow. And on the insurance company call, would they be so sophisticated that they're knowing that I've had some issues and, and they're acting as like a federal insurance or, I mean, I should know my own insurance company. Um, how do they, how do they get through on this? Well, they are not, uh, living in an isolated world. They know, particularly with this last set of floodings in Vermont, this made national news and, that means that there are people out there 
who aren't living in Vermont who are picking up on the fact that there was a major problem. So it's very easy to go online, pick out a, in, uh, a phone area code, and just deluge that phone area code with calls. And you're likely, you know, you may make 200 calls, but you don't plan on hitting uh, the pay dirt with all 200. All you have to do is get a few people to fall for the call. And you can say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here calling you from FEMA, or um, this is National Insurance. We've been uh, hired by your town to take care of some of the general claims that have been filed around the state, and your town has asked us to get in touch with residents. These folks sound very convincing, and as a result, people believe it. You know, quite often the, the guy on the phone or the lady on the phone will say something like, uh, I'm working for Aetna Insurance, and my uh, employee number is 73516. Yeah. They can put anything out there to give you a sense that they are an official. That is and so amazing. To, uh, yeah, we, we tend to follow, you know, when somebody who we feel is in authority uh, contacts us, we tend to listen. I'm talking with Elliot Greenblatt this morning with the AARP and uh, the the scams and, and now one that's so local to the disaster that we've just experienced over the last several weeks here in Vermont. And as, as Elliot said, this is really the low of the low. You're a, a mean one, Mr. Grinch. I mean, I can't even believe that uh, people would do this, but they do. I'm talking with Elliot Greenblatt, uh, and Elliot is with AARP. He is uh, our monthly consultant to really some devious uh, scams that that happen, and they're they're just incredibly creative. And Elliot, I'm glad you you play for the good guys because you're when you were telling us about you know getting some money from me, I was ready to. You know, to give you my credit card and my firstborn child, <laughs> you're very convincing. The you know the the issue with these folks with the scammers is you know, they're very well educated criminals, and they know what they're doing, and they know psychology well enough so that they know where to push the buttons, how to push the buttons, how hard to push the buttons, and just by your tone of voice. They will pick up on whether you're sympathetic or not, and as a result, they will put into play a particular script. And you've told us in past shows that this isn't just vulnerable um, elderly. This this really goes across the board that people are scammed at all ages and in all levels. Well, you know, we're we're coming into the autumn, and we're coming into back to school time. And here's where younger people end up falling into some of these traps. And the traps are very well conceived. Uh, this is not a case of, you know, you saying, oh, you know, I should have known better, or somebody saying to a person, oh, you should have known better, my 12-year-old could have figured it out. No, there's no shame in this. There's a need to recognize that we're dealing with folks who are very intelligent, very good at what they do. If they weren't good at what they do, they wouldn't be doing it. So, you know, if you feel you've been uh, scammed, if you even have a, a sense
sense of it, there are some things you can do. One is contact the Vermont Attorney General's Consumer Assistance Program. They have an 800 number, which is 800-649-2424. Or you can go online to the Vermont Attorney General, uh, ago at vermont.gov, and file a report. And if you have lost money, file a police report. Get that on the record because there may be a possibility of some restitution. Mm. But as far as younger people right now, uh, parents are going out. Uh, it's the month of August. You want to do some shopping, get the clothes and supplies. And a lot of people don't like driving around from store to store. They go online. Be very careful online. We've tracked at this point about 6,000 um, imposter websites. And I was just looking at my list, and I've got about 40 of them in front of me for Puma Shoes. Uh, they have every sort of uh, ID for an address or URL. Uh, if you're going to buy something online, the best thing to do is check that address that you're going to. Don't Google and, you know, accept whatever shows up on top. But, for example, if you're looking for something like Skechers Shoes, the uh, web address for Skechers is Skechers.com. Nothing in between the word Skechers and the .com. So if you see SketchersNZ.com, that's a scam. Wow. It's very easy to pick those up before you connect. Uh, and the other thing with shopping for kids or even for yourself online, uh, beware of social media sales. Uh, probably the biggest area where we see scamming today online is people who are on social media could be Twitter or X now, uh, Facebook, any of the online social media sites, uh, you see these deals pop up and, wow, this sounds really good. I think I'll buy that. And you click. Uh, social media sales, for the most part, are not sales. They're attempts to entrap you, to get your credit card information or even just your, your name and address, uh, and then target you for later problems. So be aware of those things. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of cars come on the market right now. Uh, people who are putting their cars on social media, uh, less reputable car dealers. And you need to be very careful on used car purchases. Between the uh, flooding in Florida and in California and in Vermont and in Texas, there are a lot of cars that are up for sale that have been put out to auction or just being sold online uh, as great deals, make sure the car that you're buying has not been flooded out at some point. Wow. So there, we, there are things that you need to check for. It's it's really, really necessary to, to go the, the final yard before you provide any information. So I've got a couple callers on the line that I'm going to get to in a moment. I want to, um, one of my offline callers wants to know if Medicare ever calls home numbers. Is that, uh, will, will we get calls from Medicare? You will not get calls. You will not get emails. You won't get 
text messages from any federal or state government unless you've arranged to get them. So if you get out of the blue something from Medicare, uh, if it's a call, text, uh, email, it's 99% chance of being a scam. Wow, okay, that's a good answer for our um, offline uh, question. Uh, I've got two uh so two on the phone line. I'm going to start with Rob from Williamstown. Welcome, Rob. Yeah, hey, good morning. I just want to real quick put out there that the grandma, grandpa, I need money help phone calls are coming out big in this area lately. I know at our household we've gotten four in the last week. So I know this has been covered before, but just throwing it out there for a refresher for folks. I'll get out of the way. Thank wow, you. thank you, Rob. Yeah, uh, Elliot. Yeah, that's... Just, just a quick Quick comment on that. Arrange, you know, if you get one of those calls and you have any question uh, about it, have something in mind that your grandchild would know about you or that you would know about your grandchild and put that out as a question to the caller. And if they can't answer it, hang up. That's, that's the easiest way. Yeah. But generally, these are going to be imposter calls. Uh, and they're particularly dangerous now that uh, artificial intelligence is out there because with just a snippet of somebody's voice, they can create a voice that sounds exactly like the person you know. Oh, my God. Um, I want to welcome Mary from Randolph Center to the conversation. Welcome, Mary. Very timely talking about uh, the scams, and it happened to me, and I'm, I'm, you know, should be more aware, but it happened with sneakers. Um, I won't say the brand. It doesn't matter. But they were, you know, a great price, and I ordered them. I sent the link to my daughter. She's like, Mom, that's not possible. But long story short, I am getting a refund. Um, I tracked the company down uh, from my debit card um, online on the bank. Their uh, website was on there because the website I had contacted was already gone. Uh, but I've contacted them. They're apparently sending me a refund minus 10% for banking fees. Wow. <laughs> so we'll see. They will see. But now I know. I mean, those... Like um, your guest was talking about, Elliot was saying, you have to look at the the website. It has to say, you know, the right sneaker name dot com before, you know. So anyway, lesson learned. Well, thank you, Mary. I'm, I'm glad you're getting most of it back. Uh, I want to go to the phone lines uh, to Gloria from Duxbury. Welcome to the program, Gloria. Hi. I was going to follow up on that. Is that um, the phone call? I had more than one phone call from purportedly Medicare, but it was that um, there's a new plastic card, and did I have a new plastic card? That was the that was what the the, uh, question was. Well, so simple as that. Simple as that. I said I'm all right with Medicare, and then I I hanged up. But then there was another phone call, and there was another phone call. So I wondered if there is a new plastic card. I don't have one of them. But um, Elliot, do you know about that? I. Yeah, I've heard of this scam. Yeah, it's going around the whole country. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, there's nothing in, there is something in the works to go to a plastic card. But you're going to find out when Medicare sends you a letter, 
and it may come with your Medicare statement. It may come as a separate letter from Medicare saying we are creating a new card. Uh, if you get a call, text, or email about a new card, uh, it's probably an attempt to get your Medicare number. You know, we're losing about $100 billion, that's B, billion, dollars a year on Medicare fraud. It is the one largest area that we see happening around the country. And, you know, whether it's uh, a con artist stealing the money, uh, a Medicare provider overbilling, it's about $100 billion a year. That's significant. And anything we can do to, to kind of save that from happening, uh, it requires vigilance on our part. They will not call you. They will not text you. They will not email you. So as soon as you get that call, the thing they want is your Medicare number. Hang up. That's what I did. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, great. I know. It was just the first that ever happened. So, so, And then there was another one, and there was another one also. Well, so thank I'm sure that other, others are getting those calls. Yeah, thank you for uh, calling oh, yeah. in and helping yeah. us okay. with this. That's uh, great. Elliot, uh, college apartment rentals, I mean, man, it doesn't stop. Well, you know, this is uh, – college students are targeted, and particularly freshmen. It's very easy to pull up lists of recent graduates at, from high school and even college students. So what we see happening here is students being targeted, offered the opportunity to get a great apartment rental. All they have to do is put a down payment down. This is also happening on social media. It's another one of those social media scams where you see in a, in a town like Johnson or Linden or Middlebury, uh, small towns, not a lot of apartments, and somebody's got a great deal. But, Be very careful. Don't yeah. put any money down until you can verify the ownership. And you can do that by going online to the town's uh, grand list and see if that person owns the property. Yeah. I've got one more caller. Uh, we've got a little bit of time left. Catherine from Moortown, welcome to the program. Thank you. Listen, um, I heard about them quite a long time ago. So when they called me about my grandson was in jail and he was up in Montreal, I said, I don't have any grandkids. And the truth of it is I do have, but I was aware of them. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Thank you for the call, Catherine. Okay. Uh, Elliot, uh, you... You've uh, struck a nerve in in Vermont today in, in a good way that um, really bringing an awareness to a big problem. Uh, we've got about two the minutes left. People, the fact that people are calling in is great because other listeners are hearing, you know, there's no embarrassment, there's no shame in saying, I am a victim. Yeah. It's like any other crime. And, and people need to, you know, constantly... Be on defense. This is a fast-moving field, and as soon as you see something happening in the news, know that there will be scammers out there working that issue. What are what are your closing words for our listeners today, Elliot? Uh, you know, stay in the program as far as knowing what's going on. You can get free alerts from the Attorney General's office. The 
Federal Trade Commission does a phenomenal job, and AARP. And if people need to, you know, ask a question, they can contact me. My email address is e g r b e n b l o t t. That's e green block at aarp dot org. Well,、uh, we appreciate everything you've brought here today, Elliot, and、uh, our callers、uh, appreciate this. The listeners out there, billion-dollar industry folks on scams,、uh, something that I've never heard about. This whole back-to-school stuff, buying、uh, sneakers—it's—it's it's just crazy. What the—and then taking advantage of people who have been harmed in the floods. I mean, it—it it doesn't get worse than that. Uh, Elliot, we'll、uh, talk with you in a month, and we really appreciate everything you do. Thank you for having me on today. Good morning, it's Brad Furlan, your Monday host here at WDEV on Vermont Viewpoint in Waterbury. I love. Coming to Waterbury, my grandparents were here when I was a little kid. My grandfather was a psychiatrist at the state hospital from the late 20s until、uh, he retired、uh, in the 60s, and then lived up in Waterbury Center and did a private practice. And my mother was、uh, at what you know through the whole school system at Waterbury, and、uh, remember her.、Uh, Strawberry, blueberry, raspberry pie, rah 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 for Waterbury High. And if you remember that, you're probably、um, you may be sitting in a couch somewhere、uh, having pudding. I don't know.、Uh, my next guest is a, a friend of mine, and、uh, she, Stacy Hamlet. I want to welcome you to the show. How are you today? Up.、Oh, we may have lost her for a moment. We'll have her back.、Uh, Uh, Stacy is the owner of Urban Salon and、uh, a new business called Lifestyling with Stacy. And、uh, I think Stacy, you're back on the air with me. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Sorry about. <laughs> no worries. This is Vermont. We all understand that we. Yeah. Can you hear me now?、Uh, I totally can. <laughs> can you hear me? That's important. <laughs> so Urban Salon. Let's start with that.、Uh, you. You were, were an entrepreneur. You、uh, created a business in、uh, Burlington. Did you start cutting hair and then eventually become an owner and, and organize a salon, or how, how did your journey go? Well, after my ten years in banking and insurance,、um, after I got out of school, late twenties, I decided to go to cosmetology school because you know banking and insurance is a little boring for me, and.、Um, And I went to school and started at a large salon, a fairly prestigious salon. And about five years after, as I was managing、um, the salon, I decided to go and become a solopreneur. And I rented a chair in a salon down the street. And I loved the owners that I worked with because they were like, "You need to actually own your own salon. You have bigger ideas than what we really want to have happen here."、Mm. <laughs> I then opened up my first salon in 2000. Wow, it's amazing and very successful. So I want to jump back to cosmetology school, and then when you first your first day at the job in real world is that fearful? I mean, I don't if. <laughs> First of all, they would never give me scissors because I would be in a lawsuit、yeah. immediately. But <laughs> what's it like? Well, yeah, I mean, un- unfortunately, when you go to cosmetology school, depending on the school, it's really there to 
you know, to have you pass your state boards, which is a lot about safety and sanitation. It has nothing to do with your level of creativity or people skills. And um, so, yeah, it was scary. And I was actually hired as an assistant. So I wasn't actually allowed to cut hair um, until I went through um, through some months of training and uh, assisting higher level stylists. Wow. And you mentioned something significant, and I, th- I find this fascinating, you know, uh, working with people, because it's really not just cutting hair. You you become one of their most trusted mm-hmm. people in their life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I've always taught my stylists that I've trained and people that I trained throughout the, the salon and salon life was it's you can deliver an amazing, you know, service, but if you can't have a connection, then, you know, there's people stay with, with people because of their connection. And that's why I became, I feel like I became so um, happy in this career and was because I felt this connection that I had actually longed for, for a long time and learning how to communicate, which is again, what brought me into now coaching. So yeah, it kind of all started at a, at a foundation really early on about connecting with people. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, coaching and, and really, um, what we want to get into as we, as the show goes on about really helping, um, people you're working with find their own soul Mm -hmm. kind of thing. What was your journey on that? I mean, were you, did you feel equipped for the world or what was the process? (laughs) Do we all? Do any of us really? Um, I think we do find, um, you know, you and I talked about this, you know, things are put in front of you, you know, that you don't even really know you need or want. And, you know, now in hindsight, I look back and even as a young kid, I had my own thoughts and my own um, mind and I struggled with because I was intuitive and I didn't really know where to put those thoughts or emotions. And, uh, So I really wanted to be understood, and that came from, you know, learning how to connect, right, Um, learning how to connect to myself. But that really was the foundation. I just longed to be connected with women, Mm -hmm. you know, for for understanding, maybe some validation, um, and to just see what was going on in the world. And it's not instant pudding, is it? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm 57 now, and I started at 27. And if you would have told me I'm doing what I am now, I would have laughed back then. I wanted to be a platform artist. I wanted to be all of inspiring, you know, women who wanted to, like, do, you know, fabulous things, which I thought at the time, at that very young age, that it was to be great in my craft. Yeah. Isn't that what is really interesting is like when we become really good in our craft, it doesn't mean that that's what's fulfilling. You know, there's more underneath. And, and when you talk about being good at your craft, I mean, you can be good at, um, cutting hair and you get to know a person mm-hmm. and you cut their hair and you, you help them evolve externally, let's say. But you also, um, you have to be trustworthy because people sit in your chair day after day after day and you know more about their life than their spouse might know in some cases, right? 
Yeah, I've had longer relationships with people than um, most people have been married. Um, most people have been in their jobs. You know, the evolution, I have I have people I still take care of them. Um, and I spent 30 years, like literally people who sat in my chair as I was 27. They've seen me have babies. They've seen me become a grandmother. They've seen me change and evolve in my career. But truly... It, it is. It's the trust that they can share their lives. And that vulnerability amongst women is a gift. And, you know, I really, truly do believe that when you hold space for people, amazing things happen, amazing connections happen. And uh, and we need that as women because we are, we, we do believe we have to have it all together. And we, you know, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to admit you're struggling. It's hard to, you know, so I, I always said this too, in training people, the minute you touch somebody, <laughs> there's no requirement for anything after. It's just a compassionate touch. Yeah. yeah. You, you become connected in a very, um, it, you know, uh, a, a deeper level, you know, a really lovely way of I'm touching you and, you know, the sensories and the nervous system and our, in our scalp, but just being able to talk somebody to somebody without judgment or um, concern of criticism and knowing it's going to stay right there. Yeah, exactly. We're talking with Stacy Hamblett. She's the owner of Urban Salon and also a new bit, newer business, Lifestyling with Stacy, which is really helping to guide women um, internally. She's been guiding them externally for quite a number of decades and now uh, really getting to all that practice, all the things she's heard, she's able to to bring back to some guidance. Stacy, you've had decades of of sitting behind uh, clients and uh, working on their hair and and all of that, and it's been like a uh, MBA or a, or a doctorate <laughs> in human psychology, I imagine. And and you're you've yeah, been right. a good gatherer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, the thing I, I really understood early on, um, is that, you know, how, how women really do define themselves internally based on what they see, what they look like in the mirror and, and even create a judgment around themselves, but around the person I spent, you know, also the 30 years I've been behind the chair you know, one of my own personal journeys was looking through their eyes, you know, because most women don't really like to look at themselves in the mirror. So they look at me. And so I was always, you know, it, it almost judging myself by what they were looking at. Like, you know, how did I look physically? How did I look professionally? You know, what did my hair look like? All the external stuff. So then the connection came between the conversation and yeah, you do have, you know, like 30 years of conversations. Some, you know, some I stepped over the line, some I've, you know, brought deeper meaning and people who've brought deeper meaning to me. I've met amazing women who've, you know, shaped my life and, you know, good and bad. And so when we do have that connection, it really does allow us to expand ourselves instead of staying in a place that is comfortable. And only what we see instead of what we feel. So help me with this. You started a career that was really external beauty, um, mm-hmm. for, for lack of a better word. But 
at mm-hmm. some point you had this recognition that you were only halfway there. Is that right? Is that sort of the transformation? Yeah. Well, I think, um, and I'm sure men feel the same way, but knowing I, I work primarily with women is we do really feel like we're alone. We feel like we're going through our own things that nobody else is really going through. We're struggling with certain things. And um, when I realized halfway, <laughs> I, I probably even early on, when I realized we are all going through the same things, just the details are different and where we're at is different. So that was a place that I started, you know, um, understanding myself. I really wanted to bring more to the chair of conversation, which is why in 2014 I went to um, a university, life coaching university out in Arizona. And I also had a mentor spiritually that I connected with. And she just um, encouraged me that I had this, I had this uh, unique gift that I should and, you know, reach into this. And I trusted her, like people trust me. And I started exploring it. And then, you know, health is such a big deal in our life, like how we live our life, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, um, really does create a lifestyle that we've all wanted to live. You know, we have this image in our head. And how do we get to that by blending life and business, right? So, um yeah, so when I went to school, that's how it all it started to evolve. You know, I got certified in what's called NLP, and you just understand at a subconscious level instead of from your own stories and from your own hurts, you are able to hold space and listen to um, people's journeys and struggles without, you know, your own imprint. And there, uh, in the notes you gave me, you you say a calling to stop looking and start feeling how you mm. actually want to live your life and then yeah. a place to unlearn, explore and create. Yeah. So you have to take away what all of these things that you think society puts on you that's important and yeah. and, and do a little uh, soul digging. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in there. <laughs> there's a lot in us and you know, even from the age um, up to eight, believe it or not, we start the imprinting process of our world. By the time we're 14, there's another level of imprint, meaning, you know, how we view the world, what people are telling us, how people are exemplifying themselves, what they do in their life. I'm sure you can, you know, remember times that you, if I said, you know, Brad, remember a time that the first time you felt insecure, it would probably go way back into this place. But it's only uh, it, it's only necessary to understand that's really our subconscious talking to us. So it limits us from believing there's more. And so yes, when we start really connecting and feeling, um, instead of looking, you know, things do change, and you you um, you get this connection between your brain and your heart and your gut that you lead by, you know, and. I, I bring those back to what I teach in my one of my programs, which is your heartfelt values. I was lost a lot of times in my life. And, um, you know, when I really started defining my heartfelt values, and that's a process that I do called value solicitation, and you do realize at different times you're guiding through different, your choices through different um, values, but they've changed. So then you have to pivot. Right. You have to understand, oh, this isn't where I am anymore. 
where do I want to be? And you start putting those things into a place. We get overwhelmed when we want something, you know, the stress happens from point A to point B. And it's because we want to be in point B, but we're in point A. So it's that, that process, like you're talking about, like digging deep. We, we want something to guide us that's not that. And is this a little bit about, um, are you helping them listening to their own voice and trying to block something out that's, um, guiding them to be something that they aren't? What, what are the biggest angst that you're finding in women that they're, they're feeling the pressure from? Well, so I never, ever encourage anybody to block anything. I always, um, encourage them to lean into it and listen to it because it's there for a reason. But the, you know, since the pandemic, I mean, there's more um, entrepreneurs who have decided to go do things on their own so they can truly live their life of freedom, peace, calmness, all the values that we've always wanted in our life. And that is really what it is. But we're also overwhelmed because we're in this new process. I'm in a new process of my life. I have three businesses, um, and this is truly one that I've always, you know, wanted in my life. I wanted to, I now know when I look back and and have done my work is I've always wanted to help women who wanted to help themselves. And so people who are taking that step in their life to a become an entrepreneur or um, move into some independence, maybe they're consultant, how to manage the work life balance. Okay. I call it blending because, you know, Balance is more of like you have a choice. You either pick this one or that one. Where blending is like how do we melt them into that place? And that's what I see a lot is overwhelm, overworking, proving ourselves, and um, not really sure how to keep that peace within ourselves that we actually started it for. When I started my business, I was like, oh, I can't wait. I want all this freedom. I'm going to be able to take time off when I want. And then all of a sudden the workload became my dictator, Yeah, you know, and, and then you, you have to truly start defining what it is you want and teaching your brain how to, how to um, accept that, that that's okay. It's not selfish. It's, you know, it's, it's not um, self-absorbed. It's, you know, we are women who do amazing things. We can multitask. We can do all these things. And, uh, but we don't have to and we shouldn't. Yeah. And there is a tendency to put, you know, 150% into the children and into their worlds. Yeah. And, and suddenly at some point, I guess everybody looks in the mirror and goes, you know, what about me? Or I forgot me or something like that. Right. Well, what what really does happen is we 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 almost stay in complacency. We stay in this complacency for so long, and then all of a sudden, like you said, we get to this place and we say, "Now what? Yeah. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I you know whether I I was a working mom, so I struggled with not being there with my kids, and I dealt with women who were at home with their kids who struggled with their identity and their value in the world a little bit differently than I did. So, yeah, we do get to that now what? Even in business, as a businesswoman, as an entrepreneur, as a as a, a mom who runs her home and her household, we do get to this point that we say, now what? Whether you're ready to retire, you know, whether you're ready to 
you know, go part-time, whether you're ready to upload it. Now what? Who am I? And who do I want to be in my day-to-day life that isn't based on how productive and functional I am? So we're talking with Stacey Hamblett, and uh, she's gone through a journey that really has um, led to lifestyling with Stacy as one of her businesses. How do they get in touch with you, Stacy? If they, if somebody out there is going, oh my goodness, this woman is who I need right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that would be lovely. Uh, they can go right to my website. That's probably the easiest. I am on social media as well on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and Lifestyle with Stacy is on Facebook. I also have, um, it's a little bit more difficult on Instagram, but it's in, uh, Nama Stacy, but it's spelled N-A-M-A-S-E-E instead of C-Y. But it's www.lifestylewithstacy.com. Yeah, so That's where you can find it all. Uh, it's worth it. Uh, Stacy's done the work uh, for decades, listening, 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 growing, 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 and and giving back, giving back, giving back, and lifestyling with Stacy. You can find on her website, Urban Salon. If you want to touch up, uh, I head down to Burlington <laughs> and. Uh, you know, feeling good on the outside isn't bad either, right? And so, right, right. Um, I really appreciate you joining me today. Well, I, I want to have you back. I think we could, we can talk a lot more about this. And, um, you know, it's about, uh, feel, people finding their gift. And I really appreciate you being with me today, Stacy. Thanks for asking, Brad. Have a great day. You too. Take care.